Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider what's it like to be on the ground as part of the American Armed Forces, and how should we as a country execute our military power? Our guest today, Phil Cly, is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. His first book, Redeployment, was a collection of short stories set in wartime Iraq. It won the National Book Award and was selected as one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. His debut novel, Missionaries, also involved the military tactics of U.S. soldiers. It was chosen as one of the 10 best books of 2020 by the Wall Street Journal and named by former President Barack Obama as one of his favorite books of the year. Now, Phil has published a collection of essays called Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. The essays tackle questions like, what do our wars say about who we are as a country and how we should respond as citizens? Our country's been mostly focused on the war in Ukraine recently, and we do speak with Phil about that toward the end of the episode. But the essays in Phil's book focus on the seemingly endless, more invisible conflicts that have shaped the evolution of American warfare in recent years. This is a really well-written, persuasive, and important book, and I'm so glad Phil agreed to come on the show and talk about it. I just wish I hadn't had a tech fail that kept me from participating in the interview until the very end. Yes, that was terrible. But I soldiered on. Get it? Uh, Soldiered? uh, Yeah, I (laughs) truly... I got it. I'm sorry. Yeah, we did really miss you. But back to Phil's new book. He makes many points in uncertain ground that caused me to stop and register something important that I should have thought of long ago. One example is the fact that our global war on terror has lasted far longer than the American involvement in World War II. I started by asking Phil where exactly the war on terror stands now, given that American troops were withdrawn from Afghanistan last August And in December, the U.S. said it had completed its transition from a combat mission in Iraq to one meant to, quote, advise, assist, and enable Iraqi forces. Here's what he said. It's really just, I think, the complete transition to this new form of warfare that concerns me. And of course, you know, supervise, train, and assist missions. Uh, (laughs) It sounds very benign. But we're intimately involved with the work of killing. We've settled into a style of warfare that is heavily reliant on technology, heavily reliant on working with local forces, heavily reliant on mercenaries, so that it seems as though, you know, we're sort of at a distance, right? And it's difficult to actually say directly how much violence we're responsible for, how deeply meshed in these countries we are, and yet the U.S. presence around the world has a huge impact. So it's this sort of new stage of warfare where we don't have large-scale ground deployments and where our political leaders do their utmost to insist that we're actually at peace, while nevertheless we're deeply actively involved in a lot of emissions that mean fighting groups that we're opposed to and killing people in many different countries. And that is something 
that is disturbing to me because I think that if, you know, as a nation, we're killing people around the globe or assisting in the killing of people around the globe, that should be an issue of political debate and discussion. Yeah. I want to ask a question about the story you tell about when you were in officer candidate school. In the book, you say a sergeant instructor asked you this hypothetical in front of your fellow Marines. He said, all right, candidate, say you think there's an insurgent in a house and you call in air support. But then when you walk through the rubble, there are no insurgents, just this dead Iraqi citizen with his brains spilling out of his head, his legs twitching, and a little Iraqi kid at his side asking you why his father won't get up. So what are you going to tell that Iraqi kid? I assume he said it in a very different tone of voice. However, <laughs> regardless, <laughs> yeah. regardless, that is quite a hypothetical. So what did you say at the time? And do you have a different answer now? I mean, I don't think it was necessarily even about the answer. I think I told him like, oh, this candidate does not speak Arabic. I totally counted. <laughs> right, um, right. I think it was about the question, right? And I sort of appreciated that. You know, there's a lot of hard guy play acting in, in OCS, which sort of makes sense, right? You know, they're, they're trying to, to get you to pretend to be as tough as they're going to want you to be, you know, as, as training to actually sort of be tough when situations get extremely hard. But he also wanted us to think through some of the morally bruising aspects of warfare. People who go into into the military are sort of prepared to think that, you know, they're going to face physical danger perhaps, and they might, might need physical courage. I think we think less about the moral courage that is required, especially in the kinds of wars that we fight now, where civilians are the main victims of war. You know, what sort of impact that's going to have on you over the long term, right? In the early medieval period, Pope Gregory VII declared that you cannot enter military service without sin. He didn't mean that you shouldn't, that knights shouldn't fight for justice, as he put it, but that this experience would not leave you sort of untainted. It seems so at odds with a kind of modern understanding, but I think for a lot of people who've been through war, that resonates. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, in an essay called What We're Fighting For, you tell the illuminating story of veteran Eric Fair, who went to Abu Ghraib and crossed, quote, moral lines, personal lines, lines where it was clear that he wasn't treating the people in his interrogation booth like human beings. Can you talk about Eric's experiences there and the story of the boy caught with car batteries that he said were for fishing? What impact has that kind of line crossing more generally had on the war against terror and the perception of the United States internationally? Right. So, yeah, Eric was an interrogator and became a whistleblower about torture. And he describes this moment where he finds a boy sort of captured with car batteries and other electronic devices. And the kid said, oh, you know, my dad uses these batteries for fishing. And Eric thought that that was ridiculous, right? So he used what were then approved techniques, slaps and stress positions. And the boy breaks and starts crying. And he tells Eric about a shop where his father delivers the electronics. 
and military unit raids the shop and they find a bunch of car bombs. So Eric had used techniques that he now considers torture and he felt like he'd saved lives, right? So he kept using the techniques. The kid was not the only one caught with car batteries. All of them had the same story about fishing. And when he found somebody with car batteries, he'd go right to the, the aggressive techniques. You know, the basic design of them is to humiliate, degrade people and to make people suffer until they tell you what they want, right? That is, you know, the goal. But he didn't get any more results, didn't find any more car bomb factories, just a lot of broken, weeping detainees. And so eventually he tells a fellow interrogator, they keep trying to sell me on this fishing story and I'm not falling for it. And the other guy is like, of course they fish with car batteries. Like I used to do it in Georgia. Basically you have an electric charge just on the fish uh, and then the sort of fish float up. And so now he's thinking about the fact he's, you know, he's wondering like how many innocent people did I hit and degrade? The question isn't necessarily whether or not you can, in some constrained environments, get somebody to give you actionable intelligence. Because they've got it in that one instance. The question is more, I mean, first off, what, what do you become when you do it? And then also in a larger sense, like, what practically do we become as a nation when we engage in those techniques? And how does that affect our long-term goals? I think Stanley McChrystal said that every, practically every terrorist that he picked up post Abu Ghraib mentioned that they had been radicalized by Abu Ghraib, by the torture there. I think uh, it was General Mattis who, when Abu Ghraib broke, was said to have remarked, well, we just lost the war. Mm. If you make yourselves contemptible, people will will hold you in contempt and won't believe in the values that, that you espouse because you don't actually live up to them. And I think that torture is a sort of obvious case where for very little practical benefit, we besmirched our honor, made ourselves contemptible in the eyes of the world, generated a massive amount of ill will and helped spur more people to fight against the United States for reasons that are entirely understandable. In the CIA torture report, something like 20% of the people later found out to have not done anything. Mm. It's one of the more morally repulsive things that the Bush administration did. And it was also practically stupid and hurt us in the long term. Yeah. On the flip side, you have a really interesting discussion of power in the essay called Man of War, where you discuss the reaction in 2010 of a special forces officer named Ian Fishback after a group of Sunni tribesmen launched a few mortars at his base, killing two service members. Yeah. Major Fishback made a surprising, to me at least, decision regarding how to respond, and you cite it and the aftermath as support for this conclusion, which I really like as a definition of power. Hold on, I'm going to read it. I'm going to quote it now. Go for it, yeah. Okay. The exercise of power means not dominating an external world, but weaving yourself into a web of relationships in such a way that those around you end up making choices that take your wants and desires into account. This means that power ultimately is not about control. So would you please say a little more about what happened in this instance with Major Fishback and why it led you to that conclusion? Yeah, I should mention um, Ian Fishback was somebody that I admired really tremendously, a soldier of both great physical and moral courage. 
and a really brilliant, brilliant mind. And he died um, mm. last year after uh, a pretty significant failures on the part of the VA to provide him with the kind of health care, including mental health care that he needed. I'm so sorry. That really shocked a lot of people in the military community. He had actually been a whistleblower about torture himself. And I know soldiers deployed to Iraq with his letter about upholding the ideal of America, you know, kept it with them when they deployed. Mm. So he was an inspirational person. And yeah, just wanted to note that. So that particular story, he was in this region where there were Sunni tribesmen and there were Kurds who sort of didn't trust each other. The Sunni tribesmen had been put there decades ago, brought in by Saddam Hussein after Kurds had been gassed. So there was a lot of sort of ill will for very obvious reasons and a lot of distrust. Trying to bring down the level of violence in the region was not so much about, you know, finding bad guys and killing them as it was about negotiating a very delicate political situation that was extremely volatile. And there were these mortar strikes that killed two people. And he was pretty sure he knew which tribe the mortar strikes had come from. He was pretty sure that this Sunni sheikh hadn't ordered the strikes. Now, the guy probably in the past had blood on his hands and probably knew who had done it. But Fishback felt that if he went in hard and he could have ordered a sort of kinetic strike to pick this guy up, he felt like that would sort of explode the delicate political situation in the region and lead to more violence. So instead, he went with negotiation with this guy. You know, he would have been justified if he had felt like he should have been targeting this guy or he could have justified it. But if the point of warfare is not uh, killing people that you're mad at, but actually trying to create a more stable political situation, then you have to make hard choices where you can't actually know the outcome, right? And so, you know, that was him trying to pursue something that might feel less viscerally satisfying than a military strike, but which was probably wiser in terms of creating a more stable situation. And, and they did ultimately in that region have a relative degree of stability until, you know, he left uh, redeployed. Oftentimes, I feel like in modern warfare, we substitute an easy problem for a hard problem, right? The hard problem is how to create um, a situation that's actually better and advances our interests in a really difficult social, political, and military environment. And then the easy problem is can we kill a bad guy and call it a win? And we can do that. We can kill bad guys all day. We've become incredibly efficient at killing guys. We have developed the most sophisticated set of practices and units and technologies for doing targeted assassinations that the world has ever seen. Joint Special Operations Command, which is like, you know, like Rangers, Navy SEALs, all those, you know, kind of fancy units. In 2004, they're doing about 12 raids a month. By 2006, they're doing 250. We're very, very good at it. But we're not very good about thinking through what happens next. And the what happens next has, in all of these wars, been the most important question. That's what I was concerned with, and that's the reason that I told that story with Fishback. He could have ordered a strike and chalked it up as a win, and it would have been a satisfying story. Right. It's a political story that we like telling ourselves, you know, Barack Obama 
in his last State of the Union address said, you know, if you don't think I'm serious about the war on terror, just ask Osama bin Laden. Ask the guy who planned the Benghazi strike. Um, Trump did essentially the same thing, heralding the Soleimani strike. But killing a guy is not the same as having a coherent military policy. Mm -hmm. Am I right in remembering that when Fishback was redeployed, the Sunnis uh, community expressed that it was a real loss? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You say in the book, without a political leadership that articulates and argues for a mission and objective worth dying for, it's no surprise that soldiers stop caring about the mission altogether. But if you think the mission your country keeps sending you on is pointless or impossible, and that you're only deploying to protect your brothers and sisters in arms from danger then it's not the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIS that's trying to kill you. It's America. That is a really powerful statement. <laughs> so can you say a little first about the failure of recent American leadership to define and defend a mission and then you know, talk about the impact of that failure? Sure. So I talked a little bit about the, the transition from you know, military policy that we were we would politically advocate for that leaders were spending political capital on versus sort of a continuing military policy that was designed to evade public notice. And you saw this in the Obama administration. We were killing a ton of people actively involved in a very brutal war against ISIS and certainly involved in wars in a variety of other places. But they had transitioned to a style of warfare that for the most part, Americans didn't care enough to pay attention to and which didn't become a political issue because one of the things the Obama administration did was rather than ask Congress to authorize the fight against ISIS, they just argued that it fell under the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. So it never became something where, you know, our representatives were debating whether or not we should go in, what this war was going to look like, what it was going to cost, how much it should be resourced, what the benchmarks of success would, would be. It was just sort of entirely left up to the executive, which is how presidents have, have conducted war since then. And so you have this situation where the wars are being fought on a level that seems more about political prerogatives of the executive than any sort of national effort, right? Where you're galvanizing the public, articulating war aims to the public, and also explaining war aims to the public means explaining them to the soldiers themselves. You know, I quote soldiers who are in Afghanistan thinking, like, what the hell are we doing here? One tells a reporter, this war is stupid, so what? My country's in it. Where they don't believe in the mission, they are absolutely aware that as soon as they leave, the Taliban's going to come back in. And no one at a national level is articulating really why they're there, because at a national level, our politicians don't want Americans thinking about the war that much. And that is a recipe both for bad military policy and a sort of deeply unhealthy civilian military relations. And I think it's just sort of us failing in our responsibilities as a republic when it comes to the most morally fraught endeavor that we can do as a nation, which is war. And that's a major part of what we do as a country. Just look at how much of your tax dollars go to the Department of Defense. And yet we don't think about it at all. And that is by design. Hmm. In your introduction to Uncertain Ground, you write... Looking at the images of the violence wrought on January 6th by insurrectionists at the U.S. Capitol, the realization strikes me that the most prominent images of anything resembling war in 2021 are images of Americans killing each other. 
Tragically and farcically, the wars have come home. Unable to find an overseas enemy who will allow us to definitively vanquish him, our greatest fears have become each other. Wow. So do you believe we would be less polarized and the attack on the Capitol would have been less likely if the war on terror had proceeded differently or been perceived differently by Americans at home? I think that the sort of populist anger that you feel is not unrelated to the massive failures in terms of foreign policy. You know, I tell a story of going to a wedding in Pennsylvania where I meet a Trump voter, right? So my wife is Colombian American as we're going, you know, we're driving into rural Pennsylvania. It's a military buddy of mine's getting married. And we pass like the 17th Trump digs coal sign. And she asked me like, oh, am I going to be the only Hispanic person at this wedding? And I'm like, no, nah, nah, it's a military wedding. It's going to be super diverse, which it was. But when I meet um, the other groomsmen, I text my wife and I'm like, you know, not only are you not the only Hispanic at the wedding, you're not even going to be the only Colombian American. And she's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And he already early voted for Trump. And his rationale was entirely about military policy. Mm-hmm. And he sort of said to me, he said, look, you know, you and I were both in the Marine Corps. We both know guys have been killed overseas. We both know guys with serious injuries that they're going to live with for the rest of our lives. And what do we have overseas? Just absolute disaster, right? Unbelievable suffering. And so who are the two candidates? On the one side, we have Trump. Does he know much about the military? No. Did he support the war in Iraq for like a second when everybody supported it before immediately sort of backpedaling a bit? Yeah. But his instincts over the past decades have been more isolationist and resistant to intervention. I don't expect a ton, but I expect him to kind of resist any broader expansion. On the other side, we have Hillary Clinton. She's a liberal hawk. Does she know a lot about the military? Yes. Is she competent and effective? Yes. Will she probably competently and effectively uh, expand the scope of American war? Right. Her lesson from Libya was that we should have had more of a presence there. She has, you know, General John Allen speaking at the convention, he wants to put a command command in Syria. So what did the past decade taught me that that means? That's going to mean a lot of loss of life, a lot more American kids blown up and injured, and probably utter disaster overseas. So I'm going to go with the guy who's not going to do that, right? Mm. You know, I didn't ultimately agree with him about his voting choices. And certainly I don't think that that was a consideration top of mind for most American voters. But... I think that that extent of sort of almost contemptuous distrust for elites who had wrecked unbelievable human suffering across the globe is entirely understandable. And so there's a variety of things that we need to do to be a sort of healthy republic. But I think that restoring some degree of democratic accountability and, and, and responsibility and, and sort of ownership on the part of the average American citizen for our wars and having that ownership and responsibility expressed through our elected representatives rather than having them just sort of punt and cede all decision for war making to the presidency be at least one small thing in dealing with the modern American dysfunctions of government. Given your military experience, what's your view of what's happening in Ukraine and the role that the U.S. has taken to date? This is a straightforward war of aggression. 
And so I think it's very clear that we should be supporting Ukraine. Obviously, there are sort of prudential considerations because Russia has nuclear weapons and we don't want the conflict to escalate. But I think that in many ways, what we have been doing has been good. And and we've actually been using some of the skills that we've developed in the past 20 years of, uh, of warfare, right? So there was a report just the other day about how the United States has been helping the Ukrainians with targeting, which isn't really a surprise. I sort of suspected that we were doing that at a pretty aggressive level. Uh, and that was, that was reported on helping the Ukrainians be a lot more lethal on the battlefield. But this particular conflict has captured the public imagination, right? Yeah. Now, uh, there is, I think, a question of what happens as this war drags on, what happens as the public loses interest, and also what about the other conflicts where we're engaged in similar things on a, on a sort of smaller scale, but nevertheless have very lethal effects? Is there democratic oversight, right? The public is only going to be really engaged with a few things at any given time. And yet, I think that we can put in institutional mechanisms to force us to take certain issues more seriously. This is one of the reasons why I think repealing the authorization for the use of military force that was passed in 2001 and forcing Congress to regularly vote on wars that we're engaged in would be a useful thing. Mm -hmm. Not because I think it would be a sort of cure-all for American policy, but because it would at least make it a political issue on a regular basis and force people to uh, to vote up or down and put their name to something. Yeah. And I think that in many of these conflicts, you're not going to be able to rely on the interest of the American people or it being a huge news story because, you know, we're involved in a lot of places in long running conflicts. And that's just the nature of war now. You've talked about the moral clarity in this particular conflict. How does that compare to the other conflicts that you've written about? Right. And I should say something because there is a degree to which, yes, it's very clear which side is in the right. That doesn't mean that war is not absolutely tragic. I think we always do need to be on guard against a kind of war fever, right? You know, if you go on Twitter, uh, you'll see people gleefully sharing videos of successful Ukrainian strikes. And there's always something that strikes me oddly about that, because even as I wish for Ukrainian battlefield success, yeah, we're talking about <laughs> horrible deaths of people. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are Russian conscripts and didn't necessarily even know they were invading Ukraine before the war happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sense of war as always tragic mm -hmm. needs to be forefront in our minds. Is there anything you think we should be doing differently in this conflict with um, Russia and Ukraine? I, I think that we should be thinking more broadly about what is America's role around the world and what international institutions do we want to see strengthened or built? What international norms do we want to see sort of embraced more fully? You know, what should the world look like after this conflict and what is America's role in it? That's, I think, something that we really should be thinking about very deeply right now alongside thoughts about how to best aid Ukrainians. So much of what Phil says is fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you about it forever, but I can't. One point that's worth highlighting, I think, is about mission. I'm just going to repeat really quickly that incredibly powerful statement he made. 
If you think the mission your country keeps sending you on is pointless or impossible, and that you're only deploying to protect your brothers and sisters in arms from danger, then it's not the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIS that's trying to kill you. It's America. Contrast that to what we've seen of the clarity of mission in Ukraine for Ukrainian soldiers and those supporting them. You can see the difference, in part in the massive effect on global thinking. Could not be more different. But I'm also mindful of the questions Phil left us with. You know, what lessons will we take from the conflict in Ukraine? And how do we want international norms to shift? What should our role be in the shaping and the ongoing evolution of those norms? And how do we change what we do here at home to make sure that our actions on the global stage, particularly those that put lives at stake, are taken mindfully with clarity and wisdom after informed discussion and debate? I don't want to end the episode on a download, but let's be real. How much of our policy these days is made with clarity and wisdom after informed discussion and debate? I mean, I know it is not pretty out there. Yeah. And news wise, Ukraine can't stay on top of the fold forever. In fact, I can already feel our attention shifting to domestic issues. And not that those things aren't important. Of course they are. It's more that our attention spans are only so wide. I know. But one glimmer of hope is that books like Phil's keep us thinking about what we need to do. They're at least a step in the right direction. And I'm going to say that that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Phil at www.philclyde.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to book dreams with Julie and me.